Remember that feeling at the end of school? The summer was ahead of you and you felt so free. Free of responsibilities, full of possibilities. For some of us, summer meant going to sleepaway camp or going to camp at all. Going to camp meant meaningful experiences, exploration, self-reflection, and fun. Maybe you never got to go to camp. But since it's never too late to have a happy childhood, we're all going to camp this summer. Warrior Women Camp is a 12-day audio experience where you get to relive the magic of going to summer camp. You'll get to explore, reconnect with yourself, and have fun. Are you burnt out? Exhausted? Need a break? Get your magic back. Come to Warrior Women Camp. Sign up with the link in my bio. Let's go. Women aren't born warriors. We become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week, I'm interviewing women who, through tragedy and triumph, are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Hello, warriors. Are you a good white woman? Raised to be colorblind? Have you adopted black children and believe that makes you immune to racism? There's a socialization around white womanhood. We are upholding the systems of white supremacy, and it's our responsibility to unlearn and to bust open these systems. This is what it takes to unravel white supremacy. We are getting radically honest today about what it looks like to do the work of the best-selling book, White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better by Regina King and Syra Rao has ignited. If you haven't listened to my interview with Syra and Regina and you're already feeling a little triggered, start there. Listen to episode 134. This conversation today, if you can open your heart and mind to it, will make you think about your role in upholding racism and how to do better. I know I want to do better. Why don't we do this work together? Let's get into it. I always say I have the best job in the world. I get to help women unlock their limitless potential so they can have it all. If your mind is saying you can't have it all, that's fear running the show. I'm here to tell you, The only thing between you and holistic success is you. The doors to Limitless Warrior are officially open. Join Limitless Warrior. It's time to dig deep and shine bright. It's time to permanently break up with fear. If you want all the holistic success you've been dreaming of, join us. It's a 12-week program, once a week, on a Zoom for 90 minutes. Get off that hamster wheel and be the limitless woman you know you are inside. The link to save your spot is limitless-warrior.com. Join us. All right, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. And here today we have Lisa Bond. Lisa is an advocate for personal change. She's grounded in principles of anti-oppression, decolonization, anti-racism, and restorative justice. She is a creative thinker, an effective collaborator, and an engaging facilitator. She helps white women 
unlearn the behaviors of white supremacy and white supremacy culture, which is deeply embedded in our socialization, so that we can interrupt systems of oppression at home, at work, and at play. Lisa is the program director for Race to Dinner and the program director and facilitator for Race to Community. Welcome to the show, Lisa! Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I mean, I don't even know how we found the time to do this, is all I want to say. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. But you always I make time. You can make time. <laughs> because you are a white woman doing some actually insane, amazing things. Instead of just being, quote unquote, busy, you're actually doing the things. So we're going to get really into that and what you're doing. Yes. So I'm so excited. So Lisa, how did you get into this work and develop a passion for it because I don't imagine that when you were, and I could be wrong, I don't imagine that when you were a little girl, you were like, you know what? I really want to engage with white women and have radically honest conversations about our own racism when I grew up. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> but you know what I did? I, I have been, I, I say this in jest often, but it really is true. I have been every iteration of white women and the good white woman, right? I mean, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I was raised to be colorblind, to not see race, to treat everybody. Everybody's the same. I treat everybody the same. I got older. I started dating and started dating black men. And I was like, I can't be racist. I have black. I have a black boyfriend. And then I had children and my children are black and I couldn't be racist because I have black children. And then I started doing a a lot of anti-racism work and I went and and kind of gotten to this hole of, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible racist. Um, I'm, you know, I'm irredeemable. I can't, I can't, I'm just a horrible person. I was self-flagellating, you know, then kind of started doing some of my own interpersonal identity work as a white person and became this, uh, you know, got to where I'm at now, which is we are socialized to be exactly who we are white womanhood, there's a socialization around white womanhood. And I have been socialized to to be a white woman. And that means I've been socialized to uphold systems and structures of white supremacy. I've been socialized to act in certain ways. And I recognize that. I recognize my socialization in that. And I recognize my responsibility to unlearn that socialization and to um, and to really push back against those systems um, and structures of white supremacy that uh, really harm everybody, including myself and other white women. Yeah. And you've already said two things that, of course, I'm going to have to go back and pick up and talk about. <laughs> so the first thing that I want to talk about is, OK, there are people listening right now that are white women who have either adopted uh, black sons or mm-hmm. They have black sons with black men. They will say, Lisa, what the actual hell are you talking about? I am not racist because I have black sons. So explain to me how that can even be the case to someone who's listening right now and is saying, what are you talking about, Lisa? Are you nutrageous? How could I be racist when I have a black son? That's such a hard conversation because one of my biggest regrets in life is that you know, I raised my black children and I have two black children. My son is unambiguously a black man. He is 28 years old. When you see him, you see a black man. And I have an ambiguously black biracial daughter. She she um, identifies as a mixed race black woman. And 
when black people see my daughter, they know that she is black. When when white people see my daughter, they're like, mm, she's exotic. You know, they don't really know what to um, how to how to label her, which is what you know, whiteness requires labels because labels are how we put people in a hierarchy and how we determine who's worthy and who's not worthy, et cetera. I raised my children in a very white world. And my biggest regret is that as much as I loved my children and you will ask my children and they will tell you how much I love them and they know it, I did not speak love specifically to my children's blackness. Mm. So I loved my children. But when you raise black children, when you raise brown children, when you raise children who are not normal, not typical, um, and I'm using air quotes because, you know, in white supremacist society, white children are default. White people are default. And um, so when you raise children who are not white, especially as a white person, we tend to think that all we have to do is love them and that will be okay. And the reality is I needed to love and speak love specifically to my children's blackness. Mm. And I didn't do that. And as white women, when we raise children who are not white, we kind of default to this idea that love is all that matters. And, you know, we're going to treat our children the same and we're going to give them all of these things. And the reality is the minute they step out of our house, they are treated differently by society. And if we are not speaking love directly to their blackness or directly to the thing that society would deem them deficient for, then we are failing them. And I failed my children in that way. I remember just this one story that I'll, I'll share. And I'll share this story because it, it includes my son. And I've asked him before if I could share this story. So it is shared with permission. But my sister got married in, um, in St. John in 2012. And my son was like 14 or I don't know the math. He was a he was a teenager, a young teenager. This was when the style was to have the skater hair with the flat hair in front of your eyes and so forth. And my son had this big, beautiful afro um, and he had been growing out his hair and it was like curly, these big curls and lots of lots of big curls. And I just remember sitting in this small studio apartment that we rented on St. Thomas because I couldn't afford St. John. And um, we were getting ready for the wedding. And I remember my son begging his sister in the small studio apartment in St. Thomas to flat iron his hair because he wanted his hair to be flat for the pictures. And I I have a picture of him sitting and my daughter sitting on the couch and him sitting there and her trying to flat iron his hair straight. And um, needless to say, it didn't work and he had to wet it and, and, and so forth. I remember walking out and watching that scenario play out and walking out of that little studio apartment, walking downstairs and walking along the beach in this beautiful, in this beautiful place with this beautiful water and just 
thinking, what have I done? What have I done? Because I did not speak love to my son's blackness. And he felt like his beautiful curls and his wonderful hair was deficient because I didn't speak to that part of him. And I think, you know, I would really encourage any white woman who is raising black or brown children, any white woman who is raising Asian children, any white woman who is raising a child who is not a white child, especially a what not a white child who is not racialized white by society, to really interrogate the way that they are raising their children and to interrogate the ways in which they are speaking and and speaking love to their children and to their children's differences and to the things that make their children who they are. Because if we don't speak love to that, nobody else is going to. Nobody else is going to. Yeah. I love that story. And I love that you, that you got permission to share it because it is such a, you know, these teenage moments are a a lot bigger when you're black. (laughs) We all have teenage moments. It's a whole different thing when you're thinking, well, what I am is not okay because I'm black versus just what I am is not okay because I'm a teenager or what I'm, or I'm insecure about whatever it is, but it's even Mm. more when it's a, it's all of society telling you that not just whatever insecurity you feel inside. You know? Right. And, and it, and it continues to this day. My son is 28 and we have these conversations quite often because, you know, my son has a lot of internalized anti-blackness and he didn't get that by chance. He downloaded that from somewhere and I am his parent. I am his parent. So he didn't just get that from out there. He got that from here too. He got that from home too, whether I wanted to admit it or not. And so I think it's really important that as, as white women, we consider that. We also like to think that, you know, oh, I'm not racist. I have this black child or I have a, a brown child or what have you. And I love them. But white supremacy culture is a culture that allows us to love our own and to not love others like like our own and that love doesn't doesn't continue if if you can't love the black and brown person on the street if you have those those thoughts that come into your head which they come into all of our heads if you have these those thoughts of those negative thoughts that come into your head when you are walking down the street and see a black or brown person or what have you, and you have a black or brown child, then that's some interrogation that you have to do because we are not extending that love beyond our own children. And that's what whiteness does. Whiteness says take care of our own, but we don't recognize that in our culture, our own stops at our front door. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I want to I want to say when you were talking about the, all this all the types of white women or the or the five stages of white women or whatever that whatever whatever we whatever we called it, I I had learned through when I when I was first kind of getting into this work before I met Syra and Regine actually, someone had mentioned white saviorism to me and I was like mm-hmm. what's that what is that what do you mean like because to me like I was like that's not white being a white savior like I'm I care I'm over you know but it, it's funny how some of those things being a white savior or some of the other things you kind of mentioned, like I can't be racist. I have a black son. It just takes the finger 
in the in the wrong direction. It's I even so today my my daughter said because I you know I ha- hosted a a race to dinner here mm-hmm. in the house. She's like, well, who was the worst? <laughs> and I said, you know, Coco, here's the thing. I'm not in a position to judge mm-hmm. another white woman's journey into anti-racism. Let me say I was very happy for everyone to show up. And I, in no way, can sit on a pedestal and say, well, she really isn't getting it. Like, I'm not, I am the last person who's going to do something like that after what I have learned. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Lisa and Cyrus. Well- so Syra and Regina created Race to Dinner. And that is these amazing mm-hmm. dinners. They go across the country. Sometimes companies do them. Sometimes individuals do them. But they're across the country. And it is an intimate dinner where you get into a very deep and real conversation about race. And by the way, whoever does this, nobody does it. So when you're doing it, you know you're, you're not going in there blind. They're not ambushing you like, oh, we're going to talk about video games. Just kidding. Mm-hmm. We're talking about race. Everybody knows why, why they're there. But it really does bring up a lot of emotion. People step, you know, put their foot in their mouths and Regina and Syrah are right there to be like, hey, let me just show you this, you know? So it can be uncomfortable, but it is a good uncomfortable in my mind because I think it's not as uncomfortable as a black person feels walking around. So I feel like it's really great, great to do. I've already done one, I'm doing another one in Florida, thanks to you and helping me out with that. So thanks for getting me on the calendar. But yeah, let's talk about how you how you came to Race to Dinner and how you came yeah. to working with Syrah and Regina. So my husband is a pastor and we were living in um, Arkansas in 2015, 2016. Um, and of course, Trump was elected. That was a, a really pivotal moment in our church and in our life. And we had some difficult conversations with with the church leaders and made the decision that this was not the place for us for a lot of reasons so we um left and we went to chicagoland and we were in a we were in a northwest suburb and i was so excited when i moved there because i i like i said i grew up in oklahoma and i had lived there most of my life i had just recently moved to arkansas not any different and I was so excited. I was like, oh, I'm going to be in a blue state. It's going to be wonderful. And we went to visit and everybody had the hate has no home signs here. And, you know, it was like Pleasantville. It was just beautiful. And um, all of these signs and Black Lives Matter signs and all of this stuff. And and we got there and I joined all of the groups like on Facebook and all of the progressive, again, air quotes, groups, political groups and so forth to try to make connections with like-minded people. And I shared an article that Syra wrote. I hadn't met Syra. I hadn't even at this point, I hadn't even been following her, but um, shared an article that she wrote. And it was called something like white women put down your uh, pink pussy hat and pick up a mirror. And it was really about how you know, how, how we as white women are essentially how 53% of us voted for Trump in the first election and et cetera. And I shared this article in one of, in, in these so-called progressive groups online and all hell broke loose. Like you would have thought that I had like kicked grandmas and punched babies. And I, it was, it was some stuff. And I connected with Syrah over that, you know, and we had, we kind of talked and became Facebook friends after that. And then shortly after there, they posted a a call for these dinners. And 
I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. So I, like hundreds of other white women, submitted the um, information to get uh, to have a dinner. And like hundreds of white women, that was the extent of it. I didn't do anything else because I got the information. I was like, oh, that's way too much money for me to pay. I'm married to a pastor. I don't work. I don't have a lot of money. All of the things. And then they posted, or not they, but another uh, woman who was kind of filling in the the role that I do to a lesser extent. Um, She had posted about how so many people had responded and nobody actually booked a dinner. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be that white woman. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. And so I booked a dinner because hell yeah, I wasn't going to be, I'm the good white woman. Good white woman. I was going to do that one. And so I was not going to be that person. And so I booked a dinner, but then I didn't book the dinner just for that reason. I booked the dinner because by this time we realized this was not the place for us and we were going to be moving again. Anytime I had posted anything about race in any of these groups, I got shut down and so forth. So I decided I was going to have a dinner for all of these racist white women in the Northwest Burbs. And it was going to be my mic drop moment. I was going to tell them how racist they were. And then I was leaving. I was out the door. And I mean, when I say I was out the door, our house closed on June 3rd and I had my dinner on May 30th. So I was literally out the door. So something happened to me in my brain from the time that I booked the dinner to the time that I actually had the dinner. And what happened was I was preparing white women that were coming to the dinner for it, for the dinner. And we were reading things and we were, we had a private group and we were chatting about things and doing, doing all of the readings. And what I noticed was that I wasn't much different than any of these other white women. The only difference was I had learned, I had learned enough that I needed to shut the fuck up. So that was basically the difference. Like, all of the same questions, all of the same defensive things, all of the stuff came into my head. Mm. I had just learned to not voice it. And so I was watching this and, and recognizing this play out. And I picked Regina up at the, at the airport before the dinner. And we went to brunch and I was sitting across from her. I'd never met her before. And, um, so I, I told her, I said, I have to be honest, I, you know, about this thing. And so I told her basically the story and she was like, oh, you have to tell those women that. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I did. Um, so we had a dinner. It was a fine dinner. Nobody cried. Um, you know, there were some good re- uh, revelations. I think it was a little too large, but it was a fine dinner and um, had the dinner. They flew back. I moved. To Kansas City, and they called me about a month later and asked me um, the the woman who had been doing um, putting some of the uh, stuff together. She had been on sabbatical and she was going back to work. And they asked me if I wanted to take to if I wanted to start working for them. And I was like, "Yeah, absolutely." And so that's kind of how it happened. But it's just interesting that your daughter would say, "Which one was this?" Because that was my story. Like I was not going to be that person. All wow. every point along the line was me exceptionalizing myself, yeah. me being the better, me being this. 
and um it really did change my thinking yeah um about who white women are right as a group yeah and when we're putting people in judgment like that right we can't get close to them we keep them at arm's length right because we're over there i'm over here and you're over there you know so there's nothing to learn nothing to gain nothing mm-hmm. to bring forward when you're like oh not me that's not me no mm-mm, i would never right because then you have nothing to learn what are you going to learn you're just over there in judgment watching the show right so i think it's incredible that you came to that even before the dinner i would think at the dinner you would have definitely had that revelation but you came to it even before which is amazing that you get it so at least you could really go to the dinner and really like be there right yeah right um well let's talk about race to community because I love this whole, I want to know kind of how, how it was born or like how it, how it came to be, because, you know, they have this amazing book, uh, white women, everything you need to know about your own race, racism and how to already, do, right. Already yeah. know about race. Yeah. Which is a bestseller, incredible book. And really is the book for every white woman out there. Like that's like one Oh one. Would you agree? Like read the book first. That's like the one step one. Yes. Or deconstruct. It is. Or deconstructing Karen, the documentary, one, one, one or two, right? It, um, yes. Yeah. And so, and then these race to dinners are these great intimate moments where you can really kind of have your eyes open to some things. Mm-hmm. Race to community seems like it's the next in line in terms of like, okay, now I want to go deeper. Now I actually want to take this out. Like I'm starting to realize like a lot of things and that I am the problem. And how can I? actually become part of the solution? Yeah, so Race to Community started in 2021. And it kind of started from a combination of a couple of things. Number one, um, Syra and Regina had done a COVID dinner where there were a group of people that were all together in an outside location and they were joining by Zoom because it was during COVID. It was not a great dinner. There were a lot of reasons. It wasn't just because of um, the women that, you know, that a lot of people were like, oh, there were a lot of reasons. It's hard when you have people, people in one location all together and then Cyrus and Regina in another location. Yeah. Um that's difficult. But then you add on to that white solidarity, you add on to that, the behaviors and the ways in which white women socialize and are socialized to be together, et cetera. It created a really difficult scenario. And Syra was like, you have got to like, like something's got to happen with the white women. Um, And then at the same time, I had been doing my own personal work in generational trauma. And, you know, just looking at the working through the process of understanding that if black and brown people, if Jewish people, et cetera, have generational trauma and trauma markers um, through, you know, through generations because of marginalization and oppression um, at the hands of the, you know, uh, the white population and white supremacy, then what does that do to white people as oppressors? How is it, how does that trauma mark us? Because it has to. So I'd been doing some of that work as well. And, um, and then the uh, George Floyd's murder happened. And I saw a lot of, of white people like coming into this idea of 
whiteness and white supremacy, but also doing a lot of deflection. And Regina calls it the three Ds, deny, defend, deflect. And so doing a lot of deflection and looking over here and looking over there and all of these Karen videos. And, you know, you had Central Park Karen, you had Soho Karen, you have Bar Barbecue Becky, and you have all of these things that are happening. And, and you know, I noticed that it was being perpetuated by largely white people and white women who were sharing these things and sharing these um, stories to def deflect from themselves and deflect from ourselves. And so I pitched this idea, you know, you've talked about we needed to do more work with white women. And this is what I'm seeing. And also, this is what I needed. This is what I needed. And um, so they gave me permission to create Race to Community. And Race to Community is a, um, it's now a year long. It started out as an eight-week course. So it's now a year-long course. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, Anti-whiteness course. So you talked about the difference between, you know, what the book is and what the movie is and what the dinners are. And I would say that th those things are anti-racist work and anti-racist resources. Um, race to community is an anti-whiteness course. It's a course to understand our own, um, as white women, um, the ways in which we uphold white supremacy. It is, uh, an affinity group. It's only for white women. It's done in small group style. So it's eight white women, um, we go through an intensive 10 weeks where we meet every week for two to two and a half hours, uh, for 10 weeks. And we go through multiple topics and then we continue that program with a year long, um, an additional nine months of unlearning courses and projects, organizing projects. It is about ourselves. It is about the institution of me. It is about what my identity is as a white person. So many of us do not have an understanding of, of number one, who we are. I mean, that's something that a lot of women in, in particular struggle with is their identity and identifying their identity. And so much of our identity becomes from um, how we are as partners, how we are as parents, how we are as coworkers or friends or what have you. And so we, you know, I think, in our culture, women tend to struggle with their own identity outside of those things. And then this is adding an additional layer on that because we are not racialized in society. We are, like I said earlier, norms. We are the norm. When you talk about, when you talk about Americans, people see white people. Yeah. When you talk about women, people see white women. Yes. Um, and we don't have that definer in front of us. That's one of the reasons why we always say white women, white women, white women, white people, um, because we're not racialized. And so what race to community does is it helps us understand that we do have a racial identity, that, um, that, that white, that racial identity is white and who we are as a white person, as a white woman 
outside of the systems of white supremacy because white culture is white supremacy culture. They are in they they cannot be um, untangled. And so we have to recognize that as white women, we actually have to pull ourselves out and understand what our identity is outside of that. And that's what race to community helps do. Um, there's several sections of it, several pieces of it. But um, the interesting thing about it is it is an affinity group, but we never actually talk about the ways white supremacy impacts Black, Indigenous, non-Black people of color. We only and always talk about how we act within white supremacist systems. And so it a lot of our resources and references are probably things that anybody who has done any work in anti-racism will have read. However, um, we are asking white women to read them from the lens of their white identity. Yeah. And it creates a different um, perception and idea of what, what happens there. Yeah. So it's an incredible, I mean, incredibly personal work, which I I think why yes. you keep the groups really small so that that can actually get so that it can have an intimacy level where people actually can mm -hmm. do that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And there's a lot of pieces that go to it. It's, you know, we have um, original readings, we have resources that are written, we have reflection questions. So there's understanding, there is the conversation, which is the meat of it is learning how do how do we be vulnerable white supremacy culture says that relationship is transactional so i will trust you if you prove to me that you're trustworthy i will do something with you if you prove to me that it's going to be beneficial to me that's white supremacy culture so asking white women to be vulnerable with eight or seven others that they have never met yeah. And that they don't know about, they might not even, I tell women, you might not want to have a coffee or a glass of wine with somebody in this cohort. 100%. But if you have shared liberation as your goal, then that doesn't matter because we are, we are, we are breaking the, the rules of white supremacy that say a relationship has to be transactional. I have to be able to get something from you to, to be in relationship with you. And so we are asking women to be vulnerable with folks that they don't know. We're asking them to talk about race and to talk about their whiteness, which is not something that we do every day. And then we're also asking them to um, hear critique of that whiteness by someone, namely me, who might come in, who doesn't know everything either. I mean, I'm not an expert. I tell people I'm not an expert. I'm just a white woman. And so, but I'll come in. I'm like a fly on the wall. My camera's off. I don't speak. I'm muted. But every once in a while, I'll pop in and I'll say, I'm going to challenge that. Or what if you were to think further on this or what have you? And part of that is number one, getting a critique from what, what we think is a critique from another white person? How does that make us feel? Do we get upset? Do we get angry? Do we um, deny? What is, where do we feel? And then we're able to take that and understand that feeling to go out in the world. And so then the next time a black or a brown person 
says something to us, like that was racist, we can say, you know what? I've had this reaction when a white person critiqued me or I did this. This is the reaction I'm having. What is it? What is the difference? Why am I feeling different? How does this look? How does this feel? And it creates, it's experiential, right? So we're creating ways that women can interrogate the institution that is ourselves. That's amazing. I love this. Um, I want to talk about here for the kids, uh, kind of what your role is and and not because I don't know if I know your exact role in there. I don't know if you're you're just like rah rah in there or if you have a, you have an official role. But um, I want to talk about here for the kids. You just got back from Denver and had this enormous sit in. Um, because Here for the Kids operationalizes the white woman book and race to community, all the work you're doing, it puts it in action. So like, let's talk about Here for the Kids. Yes. Yeah, so Here for the Kids is essentially ban guns and create a buyback program. And the goal of Here for the Kids is to ban guns in the country. Guns are the number one killer of kids and teenagers in the United States. And we can actually do something about that. And the reality is, is that we have been brainwashed to believe by the systems of white supremacy, by our politicians, our elected officials, that there's nothing that we can do about it because um, of the Second Amendment. And the Second Amendment is a racist amendment that was it was um, you know given to folks essentially so that so that white men could continue to enslave black and brown or black people, black uh, people in the country to prevent them um, from escaping chattel slavery. And um, it's a, it's a racist amendment. And, you know, that I think the interesting thing is we have 27, we have 27 amendments to the constitution. And one of those is actually repealing another amendment. So it's not like we can't change anything, but we 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 like to, you know, it's it's very easy to say, oh, we can't do anything about it. But the reality is we can. It just takes us out of our comfort zone. And so here for the kids, it really we we called um non-disabled, cisgendered, cisgender white women to action. And we we specifically called um, folks that are not part of marginalized communities because people who are part of marginalized communities have been fighting these systems for as long as they've existed. Um, but white women have not, cisgender white women have not been fighting these systems. We've been, you know, just kind of riding the wave of, you know, being relatively safe. And, you know, our feminism even is based in supremacy because, you know, we 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 talk about the things that impact us, but we don't, you know, you rarely hear feminists, white feminists talk about um, gun violence. You, but it's, it's a feminist issue. You very rarely hear white feminists talk about um, food scarcity. But it's a feminist issue. And so we are really calling to action white women who are the least likely to be brutalized by police, who have the most power in society, um, to use that power 
And, uh, and so the, a number of the women who participated in the organizing of here for the kids as, uh, white women volunteer organizers were, uh, women who have gone through race to dinner or race to community or both. They are women who have read the white women book and they were compelled to kind of break out of that kind of walking death that is white supremacy and white womanhood and um, put it, put their power to work for our children. I mean, if we can't, if we can't put our power to work for our children, then, then that's a problem. And um, so, yeah, so I am, I am the, I'm on the board of here for the kids. It is a 501 C4. It's a lobbying organization. Um, and, um, I act as the operations manager of the organization with a lot of really amazing people like Syra, Tina Strawn, um, and others. So, um, and, and Denver was great. We didn't have 25,000, uh, white women. However, we had a lot of white women. And what's so interesting is I went and I was walking, I, you know, the day, day one of the action. And I was walking down this line of people and their the horns are honking and, and so forth. And it started pouring rain, like torrential, like flash flood rains. It was so, it was really, really rainy and they weren't moving. They stayed there with their signs, throwing ponchos on, they were not going anywhere. And I was like, oh, this is what it looks like when people are committed. Like they stayed there. In fact, when it started, when it started lightning, we made them leave. And a, a good number of them, they didn't leave. They actually just went and hid on the steps of the Capitol. So they were in it. And we continue to see that impact of white women operationalizing the book, white women the movie deconstructing Karen and really just the idea that there is something to white womanhood that we have been conditioned to believe. And we don't actually have to stay in that spot. We can take the power and the knowledge that we have and we can use it for good. And that's part of having that white identity, that positive white identity that I talked about in race to community. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to have what be white and have all the power, how about you use your powers for good? <laughs> right. 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 And we know that others have used them. I mean, yeah. how do you think that it is white women who are actually getting books banned in Florida? It is white women who led the charge to get um, black history. White women got Trump elected. It is white women who have been doing this. So if we have not as white women, as liberal white women, and I can use air quotes there, or progressive white women, or even those of us who didn't vote for Trump, we have actually not done anything, anything in service to actually breaking and tearing down the systems. We have been doing piecemeal things that impact us individually. You know, and I, you know, at, for a long time, my Twitter profile said something like, I'm a, I'm a, you know, straight, white, cisgendered, cisgender woman married to a pastor in the South. 
with no uterus. Like I have like all the privilege, all the privilege. And that privilege that I have requires me to act into it. That is what we are asking of white women with Care for the Kids. Act into your privilege. Act into your privilege. That might be the name of the podcast. I kind of love that right there. <laughs> okay, Lisa, we have reached the speed round because I think at this I point, know. if you're a white woman and you're listening to this podcast and you have not said to yourself, if you're saying right now, I don't know what to do to take action, then I am embarrassed for you because we've mentioned a book, a movie, here for the kids. You can go and do another sit-in. I'm sure they're going to have something. You can also donate money. You can donate your time. There's so much you could, you could have a race to dinner. You could host a race to dinner. You can join race to community. There's a million things you can do. So don't ever, don't even for a second be like, I don't even know. So I'm not even going to go there with that. Okay. So let's go on to the speed round, Lisa. It's party time. Okay. So fill in the blank. I am learning that. I am learning that I will never have all of the answers. Mm. And that's a good thing. When I feel lost, I... You know, I would like to say when I feel lost, I, you know, do studying and I go into and I interrogate me and I do all this stuff. But the reality is I'm a white woman. So when I feel lost, what I usually do is I go where I'm comfortable. And um, that's something I'm working on every day because where I'm comfortable is where whiteness and white supremacy lives. So I work on every day when I feel lost to challenge myself and to interrogate myself in ways that in ways that are really difficult, especially during those times. That's that's the first person who ever, whoever answered that question like that, Lisa, let me just say, I am a woman who I am a woman who cusses like a fucking sailor. Like <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, I I think I've done, I've only said, I've only dropped the you haven't like cussed three that or much. four times. We've been like, I know. Really good. I don't know what's I wrong with know. that. I don't know either, but I really, <laughs> really have that. That is just, it's my love language. I, I could, we bond over this. We Lisa bond over this. I, I love this too. I love this journey for us. Um, I'm proud of the fact that I. Oh, I'm proud of the fact that I am not afraid to be wrong. I love that. I always say. I always say interrogate it. Yeah. Interrogate it. I love that word interrogation because it's more than like explore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, asking questions. It. Like put it on the witness stand. Is that true? Really? Is that really real? Like, I mean, we're talking about like really going after something with an intention, right? Like that's yes. an interrogation, right? And, and the interesting thing about the interrogation is that you don't always come up with a different answer, right? But you have to do the work of, of identifying and, and understanding why you have that answer. So, so that's why I like the interrogation. Interrogation. I really love that word. I'm really excited about. I'm really excited about getting all the painting done in my house. I just <laughs> moved and I've been painting and, um, I hate it so much, but I also hate paying people to paint when I can paint. And so I'm really excited about the fact that I get, eventually it will all be done. 
Yeah, eventually it will be done. And you've got all your colors on the wall. So you're trying to trying all the different colors, trying to figure it out. I'm trying. I'm very excited to pay people to do shit like that because the last thing you're going to see me doing is painting a goddamn wall. And I'll tell you why, Lisa. I'm so bad at it. It will take me 95 more hours than a guy that I pay to do. I'm, I, in fact, I beg him to take my money. How much money do you want for this? A million dollars? Please take this. Oh, no. I really there are some things that I will pay for. For instance, I will pay somebody to do my laundry, but not just do it, to put it away. I hate, like, hate laundry. Mm-hmm. And I will pay somebody to put my laundry away for me. Yeah. 100%. Well, that's why I have but, teenagers, Lisa. That's why I have teenagers. Um, <laughs> you know, mine are all like adult. You know they're, well, they're, now. they're going now. They're not, even, they're not even there anymore for you to make. You know, they're, they're, they got to put their own laundry away. Yeah. Now they're, now um, they're adults. Now they got to put away their own. But, yeah. So I, I don't mind the painting. I think more than anything with the painting, it's like this room that I just painted has a ton of bookshelves and there's lots of cutting in and so forth. Oh the big walls, like the, the other, the rest of the house should be fine because it's just normal. You can just like, you know, up yeah. and down and, yeah. and it'll be done. Yeah. But um yeah, I'm very excited. I'm very excited for uh, for that. I'm also very excited because we're going to um, London for a deconstructing Karen screening in July. I so I'm excited that. for that too. Okay, so deconstructing Karen is coming to London in July. I actually just texted because yes. I saw that on social media. So I sent the mm-hmm. link to the Eventbrite. I'll put that also in the show notes. Yes, um, please. To my friends that live there. Who I already brought when I flew over there, Lisa, because you know I I've, I'm a white woman will travel. I bring my white women book. This is this, I just want everyone to know that this is the fun I have in life. I bring white women books with me everywhere because I have a lot of white friends, and so I brought that across the pond to London to my girlfriend, and I was like, "Here you go. Here's a housewarming gift. I just arrived. Here you go." She was like, "What is this?" I was like, "Oh, you're gonna love it. It's the best book ever." So she she's already know she already knows that I'm on her case. So I sent her I sent her the deconstructing thing too because I was like, "You should go see this." That's also. wonderful. She yeah. should go see it. She yeah. should come see me. Yeah, and Syra and Regina. And um, so we've got two events in London and then one of it in Bath. I love it. I'll send it to her little college age, Joel. Yes. She's amazing. I'll send it to her too. Okay. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I was looking forward to this so much. I had Siren Regina on. I'm sure I'm going to have them on again. Um, And I want to really have, there's one of the founders, I think, of Here for the Kids. I want to have her on. Patty told me I should have her on. Tina? Tina Strong. Yes. Yes. I want to have her on. Yes. So we'll have her on. We'll, we'll do more on here for the kids, but I'm just, I'm so excited about everything you're doing and I love oh, thank you. all the ways you play and I love to play with you. So thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, you know what to do. Leave us a five-star written review. This is The Conversation with Warrior Women Podcast with Mila Swadek. And remember, every woman has a story. You just need to ask her. Bye.